I'm Anthony Fowler. I'm Viola Juda. I'm Will Howell, and this is Not Another Politics Podcast. So what an extraordinary week. We've seen the president in the aftermath of spreading all kinds of disinformation and lies about an election, helped organize and then gave a speech in which he directed a, a mob to descend upon Capitol Hill. And we're going to the Capitol and we're going to try and give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help, we're tr- going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. Then took over Congress. Go! Go! Let's go! During that, those events, a number of people died. We saw had all the symbolism and feel of an insurrection. And it raised lots of big questions about the role of race in our politics, the role of parties and party factions, and raised profound concerns about uh, the health of our democracy, the stability of our democracy, the endurance of our democracy, themes all that we've we've tried to grapple with on this show of ours. Absolutely. If you've been watching political news for the last week or even the last four years, you probably get the sense that there are a lot of Americans who don't care very much about the health of our democracy. I mean, of course, a, a violent mob intentionally trying to invade the Capitol building and disrupt the certification of an election is a horrible manifestation of that. But it seems like a seems like a good time to wonder about the state of democracy, but also the, the extent to which Americans actually care about democracy. What do we do? We have any compelling evidence or any reasons to think that you know things are as bad as they seem on television? Yeah. So I think I speak for all of us uh, if I say that this is not how we planned to start. Uh, our podcast in 2021, but uh, by strange coincidence, we were planning to start with a paper that actually asks the question, to what extent are voters willing to trade off the qualities of, of uh, their preferred candidate for some you know, changes in how our democracy works and for some uh, anti-democratic uh, behavior of, of the politicians. This, is, this episode that you're going to hear is an episode that we've uh, recorded before the events of the last week, but this is going to shed some light on on what happened last week and maybe how we should interpret those events and how optimistic or pessimistic we should be about them. So yeah, without uh, further <laughs> delay, Will, you've talked to someone who who was trying to tackle those questions. I did. I spoke with Milan Svolik, who is a graduate of the University of Chicago. He's now a professor at Yale in the political science department. He and Matthew Graham have a, a paper that came out just this past year in the APSR, the American Political Science Review, entitled Democracy in America, Partisanship, Polarization, and the Robustness of Support for Democracy in the United States, in which they try to grapple with precisely the issues that you two have raised, which is, namely, can we vest any uh, hope that the public will step in and function as a kind of guardrail of last resort against the entreaties of a demagogue. So why don't we give the the interview a listen? Milan, welcome. It's really a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So can you just say a little bit about your work in this area and what brought you to this particular paper and the the particular question that you're asking in this paper? Yes. So I study democracy, authoritarianism around the world. And one of the most prominent trends that we observe is that when democracies break down these gates, 
it is not one single sharp event, but it is usually a process that starts by a democratically elected incumbent gradually undermining democracy. That is, it is somebody who previously had to gain a majority or a plurality of votes in a perfectly democratic election, who then uses the power of, of the office to try to undermine democracy and perpetuate his position in power. We try to examine in the United States, can we count on the public to serve as a democratic check? And what do we mean by that? If an elected politician proposes to do something that violates a key democratic principles, are Americans willing to punish that politician that they would otherwise vote for by defecting from that politician early on after political scientists started doing surveys? that this is the 1940s, 50s, 60s, they also started asking Americans and later citizens around the world about their commitment to democratic principles. And ever since then, Americans score very high, around eight out of 10 on average recently, but crucially, it's so also in most of the world. And so one problem I see with asking about democracy in this way, especially in the United States, is Americans know that the politically, the socially acceptable way to answer that question is in only one way. And that is, yes, I think it's very important to live in a country that's governed democratically. The problem is, first of all, it's at a highly abstract level. So it's a very general question. But crucially, it doesn't capture what you're willing to sacrifice for democracy. What is the price that you're willing to democracy? And crucially, when we observe democracy being undermined around the world, the choice is not between candidate A and candidate B, and the only difference between them being that one is undemocratic, right? Usually, what you're posed with is a trade-off where you would re you're really like candidate A, but candidate A is doing something undemocratic. And then this candidate B who you don't like for many policy partisan reasons, and who is democratic? And the question is, in a choice like this, even though you say it's important for you to live in a country that's governed democratically, is it important enough so that when candidate A does something undemocratic, you're willing to say, okay, and I'm willing to punish candidate A for that by voting in this particular election for candidate B. Okay, so okay, so that's, the, that's what you want to investigate. And you do it in two ways. One is through a survey experiment, and then the other has to do with something of a kind of a natural experiment. You take advantage of this curious event that happened in Montana. We'll get to that in a bit. But tell us first about this candidate choice experiment that you run. Um, how did you set things up? And how, in setting it up the way that you did, were you able to evaluate these different kinds of claims? We took a representative sample of Americans. Each of those respondents was faced with a choice between two politicians. Each politician was described by the attributes that we typically see in elections. So they had, as I mentioned, a party, an economic policy, a social policy. They also were described by their age, gender, race, and occupation, and an experience in that occupation. But then crucially, each of them was also randomly set to have endorsed a violation of a democratic principle. It was something that either violated electoral fairness, or checks and balances, or civil liberties. And as a result, we wanted to look at what percentage of our respondents are willing to, as I mentioned previously, defect from a candidate who proposes something undemocratic. And at the level of the electorate, that would give us the percentage overall of voters who are willing to punish undemocratic behavior. And as a result, the punishment, the aggregate punishment that a candidate who would dare to behave undemocratically could expect to face from an electorate. Once we have this representative electorate making these choices between candidates, 
we can examine them then by the intensity of partisanship in a subset of electorate. So we are able to divide the electorate into partisan centrists and partisan extremists. We are able to look at the policy preferences of these voters, and we are able to order them from left to right on those who are extreme leftists versus centrists. And what we see throughout is very much consistent with our theoretical expectations. If you are a policy extremist or if you are a strong partisan, that subset of our sample is less willing to punish a candidate that they like, but who proposes something undemocratic by saying they would vote for a candidate they otherwise wouldn't vote for. Whereas centrists, and centrists here means either policy centrists or voters who in a survey say they're independents, and either they are what we would call pure independents or partisan leaners. That is, they say they're independents, but when asked one more time, well, they would say, I lean Republican or I lean Democrat. These are the voters that punish the most. In the aggregate, what we find is that roughly 11.7% of our representative electorate is willing to defect from a candidate who would propose something undemocratic. And, okay, and so the effects are most acute or largest in magnitude for moderates. But of course, we we know that, you know, extremists aren't in play. They're not subject to much, you know, mobilization efforts, except in terms of turning up a base, but not, not in terms of persuasion, that elections in the main are decided by moderates. Could I read these findings and take comfort in what you found? That is, could I say, look, these moderates, actually the effects, I mean, an effect of 10 to 12 percent is just by virtue of one anti-democratic position that's being articulated. That's a big deal, no? I mean, that's the stuff of, uh, you know, elections swinging from one candidate to another. So there are, there, there are two answers. One is that what you just described, the effect that I described as 11.7% is our most optimistic estimate. This is the estimate that we get when we completely randomly assign policy positions, partisanship, and undemocratic positions. The possible issue here is that as a result, we get candidates that we don't always see in the real world, right? So you sometimes get a Democrat who is going, who's proposing to abolish taxes, or you get a Republican who wants to, who, who wants to legalize marijuana or something like that. And so an exercise that we do in the paper is that once we have this total set of experimental candidates, we try to reduce the sample to those that look like what we observe in the real world. So what this means in our context is that it's always a Democrat running against a Republican and the Republican of the four possible positions from left to right that our candidates could have only adopts the two on the right and the Democrat on the two, the two on the left. And once we induce this party policy alignment, we see that the punishment actually drops to 3.5%. And this is a big drop, right? This now means we only yeah. three point something percent away from effectively not punishing a candidate for doing something undemocratic. And crucially, if you look at the margins by which congressional districts, for, in, for instance, are won, this is only a small fraction of congressional districts in the United States are won by a margin uh, that is smaller than that, or just as small as that. In other words, in the vast majority of congressional districts, a candidate could do something undemocratic of the larger party, of the majority party, could do something undemocratic and get It'd away be just with it. just fine and get away with it. Okay, so let's pack our bags and go to Montana then. Yes, asking in a survey 
respondents to choose between two candidates is a one thing. And the advantage of that setting is that you are able to manipulate a lot of the features of the candidates, including their undemocratic positions. We wanted to be sure that also in the real world, we would be able to arrive at a similar conclusion. The problem with the real world is that we almost never get to observe two candidates competing against each other and both being perfectly democratic. And then the same exact election, but one of them being not democratic. Almost that happened in Montana. In Montana, there was a special election for a House seat vacated by Ryan Zinke, who became who joined the Trump cabinet. And that was this election happened in 2017. It was between the Republican uh, Greg Gianforte and then, then a Democrat. And crucially, what happened in that election is that Montanans got to observe two elections. Those who voted absentee before election day, on the night before the election, Gianforte assaulted a journalist. I believe the technical term was body slammed the journalist. (laughs) And all the major newspapers, the three major newspapers in Montana, initially endorsed Gianforte. After this happened, they issued editorials on the morning of the election, denouncing him and disendorsing him. And so election day voters in Montana saw two candidates, a Republican and a Democrat, but now the Republican attacked a journalist. And so we are able to compare those who voted on election day to those who voted before election day and try to see whether that extra key information that Gianforte actually is willing to attack a journalist changed people's minds and shifted, changed how they voted. Yeah. So, I mean, just in your description of the events, you point out that that the journalists were quick to change their mind, right? So there we see immediate evidence of people making precisely the kinds of trade-offs that you were describing before. But we don't see in the main that kind of evidence in terms of voting behavior. But it's a tricky kind of comparison, of course, because people who vote absentee are systematically different from people who vote on election day. So we can't just compare the mean levels of support before to the mean levels of support on election day and expect to be able to you know, make clear claims about what the impact of that body slam was on not just the poor, the poor journalists, but on the, the thinking of voters. So how do you deal with this? That is right, that's an important, uh, that's an important objection. And what we, de- what we do is that we develop the so-called differences and differences approach. That is we, rather than taking just the precinct level vote share among absentee and in-person voters in that 2017 election, we take the difference and compare it to the vote in the 2016 election. And so now we have differenced out here any stable differences between in-person and absentee voters. And in effect, we are comparing two differences, the shift between 2016 and 2017 among absentee voters and the same shift among in-person voters. And if the Republican receives fewer votes, that shift is less favorable for the Republican among in-person voters, then we can be more confident that that change is not because of the difference between absentee and in-person voters, but rather because uh, relative to the same benchmark, now the in-person voters are actually voting less Republican. And what we see in this case in the for the sample of precincts that we're able to examine is that in fact about 3.5% of the voters are now voting less in favor of Gianforte than they would be uh, if they voted absentee. And this shift is primarily concentrated in moderate counties and moderate precincts. In extreme precincts, there's either no difference or in fact, in very few, it appears that they are actually rewarding Gianforte. 
Oh, okay. So then we're in this moment and we see all that's happening in the aftermath of this election. And we see both 74 million people voting for Trump on election day and all of the anti-democratic, I think what many people would claim would be anti-democratic appeals by Trump in the aftermath of this election and the willingness of all kinds of people to abide those claims and, 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 and you know, uh, affirm those kinds of claims. How does this paper of yours speak to this moment? One way that we can take our study is really to get a realistic estimate of what the price is that voters, and in this case, Americans, are willing to pay for democracy. And I think it's a sobering account compared to the benchmark of serving people and asking them questions like, how important is it for you to live in a country that's governed democratically? Here we have an answer where the end action is exactly what we care about, right? The choice between two candidates. And one thing that I think is very sobering about this is that this is the United States. This is one of the oldest democracies in the, in the world. And so when only 3 point something percent of Americans are willing to shift, change their voting behavior in response to undemocratic behavior by a candidate they like, I think we need to also reassess how we think about voters elsewhere in the world who are also uh, often in a similar position, but who in these classic surveys answer that they are highly committed to democracy. Our study suggests that Americans do value democracy, but that support is highly elastic and it's highly susceptible to especially partisan polarization. Okay, so if I could just take us from bad to worse and see if you'll come along with me. What you don't talk about in this paper is why an elected official, why a candidate would behave undemocratically. You simply identify the cost associated with that. But of course, there are benefits from behaving that way. Some of those benefits have to do with, you know, having a, just an appetite for power or wanting to advance a policy agenda. Another thing, though, that, you know, you sort of the, the instrumental value of behaving anti-democratically for an incumbent is, is that it's a way to improve his or her electoral chances in the next election. It's a way to limit the franchise or to suppress the vote or to make the chances of their removal from office that much more distant. And so if what you, what you have here is simply, we're going to fix the electorate and treat it as constant and show that not that many people are going to step up and offer a corrective. That, though, in combination with a recognition that the anti-democratic behavior itself has the effect of marginalizing potentially those who might vote against you or who would who represent a threat to your chances of holding on to power, make the, the story that you're telling no, all the more harrowing. I agree. So if we, on purpose, in fact, focused on the kind of violations of democratic principles when we were assigning these statements to candidates that often occur in the United States. So things like gerrymandering, voter disenfranchisement, the candidate uh, suggesting that the governor ignore court rulings by judges appointed by the other side. And we document that this indeed happens, especially at the state level. Consistent with what you said, uh, I think the most realistic interpretation of why it happens is not because there are erratic politicians throughout the United States, but because they understand that they, there are political benefits to some of these measures that are undemocratic. And because they are in a democracy, however, those measures have to be very gradual and they have to be such that voters don't react too strongly. And I guess one way to interpret our results is that 
you can succeed in that. And you can succeed in that, especially in places where your party is an advantage, because then you know that even if there is some backlash, it might not be large enough to cost you the control of the legislature or governorship, while simultaneously you might actually advance your position uh, electorally or otherwise. So the finding is that on average, these things do decrease a candidate's support. I think on average, the candidate performs something like 11 percentage points worse. And then when you restrict attention to when it's just Democrats and Republicans with disparate policy positions, it's something like three or four percentage points. So these are negative effects. They're not huge negative effects. You know, three or four percentage points is is certainly enough to tip the results of, you know, of lots of important elections, but it's not not even as large as, say, what we typically think of as the incumbency advantage or the effect of a scandal or, or even, you know, in their own experiment, they have the effect of an extramarital affair, for example. So their interpretation is that that number is relatively small and voters don't care that much about these democratic principles when there are other more important things at stake to the voters, like are they getting their preferred school funding package or something like that. And I think it's worth underscoring that last point, which is the starting point of the paper for them is to say, look, when you survey the public and you say, do you care about democracy? Everybody says, yes, hooray, we love democracy. I care about democracy. But when they're presented with trade-offs in the final analysis, they want to come out and say, yeah, but not so much. I mean, yes, at the margin, you might care about democracy, but you care about a whole bunch of other stuff a whole lot more. And so we can't count upon the American public to step up and force politicians' hands to, and ensure that they behave within democratic guardrails. I think, you know, my reading of the paper was less pessimistic than the reading of the authors uh, themselves. Like, let's talk about how large do we think those numbers really are. Are they really small or are they actually pretty large? So, like, one thing that came to my mind when I was reading is that those politicians were running for a state legislature, and then if you think, you know, they, the, the, the democratic positions that they were taking were, for example, regarding the behavior of the governor. So as a voter, when I'm deciding whether to elect a state legislator, I think how likely is it that the views that she expresses uh, are going to somehow affect the outcomes? And if I think about her views on what governor should do, it's very unlikely that her views are going to affect what the governor will actually do. But her views on immigration or her views on uh, funding state schools those are actually likely to somehow affect legislation. Uh, so, so it's not so surprising that I'm going to cringe when I hear all these undemocratic views, but that I'm going to ignore them when voting. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. I think that was, that was one of my first thoughts reading about the experiment as well, is, well, for how many of these things can a state legislator even make a difference? Whether or not the governor complies with unfavorable rulings by by judges they don't like, is not really something that the state, you know, it'd be nice if everyone in the state legislature agreed that there are certain democratic norms that the governor should abide by, but there's not a whole lot a single state legislator can do to to change, for example, whether the governor uses executive orders or whether, you know, and, and certainly, you know, certainly state legislature, state legislator cannot change the number of polling stations uh, without, at least without the cooperation of lots of other officials. Yeah, and I think, I think I completely agree. And I think there are additional complicating factors in this survey. So, for example, if you think about gerrymandering, I, I am appalled <laughs> that gerrymandering is legal in the United States. It's, it's like a crazy idea to me. And all as equal, I would rather have politicians not engaging in that. But I know that they all do. And knowing that the 
opposite party, the party that I don't support, actually actively engages in gerrymandering makes me, to be honest, want my party to engage in that too, just to level the playing field, just to make everything fair. So things that I consider very undemocratic, I might still support or not oppose, not actively oppose, because of the equilibrium we are in, because of the situation that we are in. I think this is real, this is important. I quite agree that part of what I suspect voters are hearing when they're presented with these kinds of what are being called anti-democratic positions is a sense of both leveling the playing field in the way that you've described, Viola, but also a willingness on the part of elected officials to kind of fight hard and to do everything possible in order to advance good policy in an equilibrium in which affecting change is nearly impossible. So the this, you know, supporting a governor issuing executive orders when legislators don't cooperate can be seen as, look, we've got to do something. There are problems here. This is another avenue by which we can affect change. I'm not just going to say, ho-hum, what are we to do? Change is hard. I'm going to fight hard on behalf of the interests of my constituents. And to that extent, I mean, it's tricky because that too can become a rational, a rationale for what is decidedly anti-democratic behavior. So I mean, there is that piece. But there also is what may be communicated here is just a willingness to fight hard, do everything possible in order to best represent the interests of your constituents. This is not a story about trying to corrupt a democracy through and through and co-opt the state for one's private interests necessarily. So, the, so there's even more that complicates this, I think, which is, let's, let's, again, let's not forget that the estimated effects here are negative, right? The voters on average are penalizing politicians who take these positions. And they need not be negative, right? So if, if you think through some of these things, you know, if you had just paid attention to political discourse on cable news, you might have thought these, ex these estimates would be positive. Because for many people, if you're, if, if you're a partisan extremist, this might be something you really like. You might say, I'm a, say I'm an extreme conservative Republican, and I should actively want the legislatures to say, yes, the Republican governor should do whatever he wants and should ignore journalists and ignore you know, judges and so on. And yet, Nevertheless, we're still getting these negative effects. You know, one thing that I find interesting about a lot of these, a lot of these undemocratic positions is that they already are bundling together some trade-off. There's, there's a trade-off already in here, right? I might, of course, all else equal, not want, you know, not want a governor to just ignore unfavorable court rulings. That seems like that seems bad. I care about democracy and so on. But at the same time, I might want that my own party's governor to do whatever, implement whatever policies they want because I, agree, I tend to agree with that party on policy. And so, so there's a trade-off built into that treatment already. And if I cared even more about achieving a policy goal than I cared about democratic norms and institutions, then a lot of these things I might expect a positive effect. So the fact that, the fact that I get a, a not a positive effect, but in fact a negative effect on average suggests that in many cases these, these respondents care even more about democratic norms than they care about achieving some short-term policy goal. So I think there's a way to read that result is saying, actually, the, these respondents care a lot about democratic norms. Not only do they care about democratic norms a little bit, you know, they actually care about them even more than they care about achieving, achieving some immediate policy goal. Yeah, a core part of the paper is to uh, suggest that the effects aren't uniform. I mean, this is uh, that the effects are largest among centrists. That's where the willingness to punish anti-democratic behavior appears to be most pronounced. But that, as you say, even the extremists look dimly upon this kind of behavior when there's a long tradition. I mean, I, so I studied the presidency. Henry Jones Ford uh, was a progressive 
writing a century ago talked about how there's a kind of political valor for presidents who break through the constitutional form. It's this notion that there are all these impediments that stand in procedural and small d democratic impediments that stand before you, but that what you're going to do is rise above them in order to best serve the interests of the people, come what may. And that what political failure looks like is somebody who sits on their hand and says, yes, I would like to do something on behalf of you, dear people, but what am I to do? Because there are procedures that we have to respect and norms we have to abide. And that that kind of posture in our politics is to be frowned, not just frowned upon, but to be repudiated. That's the sign of political failure. And yet here, here's a paper that says, no, even in this moment of crisis, even in this moment where we're tied up in gridlock, where it's unbelievable, and we've got widespread polarization between the parties, we nonetheless see a public willing to step forward and to say, nope, when you engage in these kinds of behaviors at the margin, I'm going to, uh, I'll be less likely to vote in favor of you. Hey, if you're getting a lot out of the research that we discuss on this show, there's another University of Chicago podcast network show that you should check out. It's called Capital Isn't. Capital Isn't uses the latest economic thinking to zero in on the ways that capitalism is, and more often than not isn't, working today. From the debate over how to distribute a vaccine to the morality of a wealth tax, capitalism clearly explains how capitalism can go wrong and what we can do about it. Listen to Capitalism, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. So if if we wanted to square the results of this paper with, it certainly seems like there's a mass of people out there who celebrate these, these undemocratic developments in some cases. How would, we, how would we do that? I mean, I could think of a few different possibilities. One is that the people that we see on cable news are in fact a tiny, tiny, tiny sliver of the American population. They're negligible and none of them were in the study. They just happen to be, you know, they just happen to get a lot of news attention. Another possibility is that there very much are these heterogeneous effects. If you are, an extreme, if you are extreme enough and partisan enough and so on, then, then yes, there are some people for whom these effects are positive, this experiment just happens to not have maybe enough data or the right kind of data to be able to detect that heterogeneity. But that they do find this in the Montana experiment. He does find some evidence that people from the most extreme districts appear to have rewarded, well, the candidate who body slammed the legislator the night before election day. And that could be seen as you see, here's somebody, I mean, it could be an affirmation of how much they hate the press, right? That they are truly anti-democratic. Another way of understanding that though, is that no, this is somebody who's really gonna fight, who really is going to stand up and do the right thing, come what may, and is not gonna put up with what's perceived as being anti-American or purely obstructionist behavior. And that that's what we want in the people who we elect to office, not people who body slam other people per se, but somebody who's really going to fight hard. Yeah, I think this brings us to the distinction between what's truly undemocratic and what people believe is undemocratic. So if I think about what's happening uh, right now in politics, you know, a lot of people on the right say, we we think that actually the election was stolen and we cannot phantom why Democrats are not trying to defend democracy. Or they say, look, we've, our voices have not been heard. How can this be democracy? For so many years, we've been abandoned. And now for the first time, we have a president that actually seems to be channeling the will of the people. So I think maybe that, that's one way to sort of try to square the results of that paper with what we see outside. That in the paper, people clearly, you know, 
think about those issues in isolation, not in a particular context, and they see that those positions are undemocratic, and then they express their position. We do not like undemocratic things. But in real life, it's a little bit of a grayer area of what I think is democratic, and what I think is democratic for me is not democratic for you. I quite agree. I quite agree. This is, in some ways, the thing that I had the hardest time with the paper, in that the paper suggesting, and usefully so, that what we ought to be doing is paying attention to trade-offs. On the one hand, I like the policy. On the other hand, I don't like the anti-democratic behavior and which one, which effect dominates. But I think much of what we observe is our understanding of what constitutes democratic behavior is itself a function of where we sit in our politics. And so when we look out right now and we see Trump um, railing against this election, you see people on the left saying, this is a coup, right? And meanwhile, on the right, they're not saying, well, it is a coup. You're right. I mean, this isn't this is anti-democratic, but Trump's the right guy. At least he has the right policies. And so I'm willing to stand with him. That's not their understanding. Their understanding is, is that no, there really was widespread fraud. There really is uh, a sense that our voices have been systematically ignored and uh, there's an election that's been stolen. And I can't believe that you people on the left aren't willing to own up to that and to face it. Now, in between all this is the status of evidence and the fact that you can't change certain people's mind by presenting evidence that suggests there was, in fact, no fraud. Well, then how seriously are we to take you when you say, no, no, I too stand for democracy. And yet, at least as they express their views uh, and they're willing to support Trump, it's not that, you know, well, he, he has the right policies, but I'm troubled by his anti-democratic behavior. It's that, no, 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 he's the one who's the true voice of the people all the way through. And our system really is rigged and we need to provide a corrective to our broken politics. But th that could be precisely where, you know, what you see on cable news is not representative of, of what's really going on in the electorate, right? I'm, I'm sure there are, in fact, many Trump supporters who hold exactly the position you said that they, they don't hold, which is, um, I agree with Trump on immigration and taxes, et cetera. Of course, I don't love all this other stuff, but I, 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 I still voted for him nevertheless. That must be a common view. That's just not, that's not the person you see screaming on cable news. That's the person who you see quietly voting for Donald Trump and not talking to their friends about it. <laughs> True, but I think there's also evidence, though, that many people who fit the characteristics that you've just offered believe that, in fact, the election was stolen, believe that, in fact, there was widespread fraud. It isn't that they say, uh, I think I'm really troubled by Trump's misbehavior here, but I, he, he will deliver us continued tax cuts. It's that they think he's fighting the right fight. There's lots of people who believe that. And they're not just the, not just the crazy people who are screaming on cable news, but there are lots of people who believe that. Yeah, so 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 I think it's actually very important. It would be very important to to know the difference, like how many people belong to the first camp and how many people belong to the second camp. And you know, part of me agrees with Anthony that probably there are a lot of people who just say those things because they want to feel better about themselves. But truly, they know that the election was not not stolen, and they support Trump only because of the policies. But I also agree with Will because look, people. During the primaries in 2015, they had a choice between Trump, who already was showing some non-democratic uh, tendencies, and other conservatives with very similar position, posi uh, policy positions, who were more democratic, who were explicitly saying you know, what Trump is saying is, is wrong and we have to preserve democracy. Fast forward to 2021, you know, you have Republicans who hold similar positions, who are running for Congress, who are running for Congress, who are in Congress, who are planning to run for Congress, and some of them actively decide to support what we would view non-democratic positions because they think they will be rewarded for those positions. So it seems that at least in 
Maybe they, they also respond towards some cable news, but as, at least, you know, in the mind of, of uh, Ted Cruz, taking an anti-democratic position, what we call anti-democratic position, is going to get him rewarded, even though he doesn't change his position on any substantive issues. But we don't have much evidence that that's true, right? And even Ted Cruz doesn't have much evidence that that's true. And if you just looked observationally, you would see that, you know, as we discussed in a previous episode, Trump notably outperformed other Republican candidates running in the same places in 2020, which would seem to suggest that um, that voters are actually penalizing Trump for, you know, maybe he matches their policy views, but he's got other shortcomings, including his undemocratic positions that might have caught votes. So I agree. So this this remains to be seen. And I'm actually sitting at the edge of my seat. <laughs> so so I, I hope you're right. I hope that Ted Cruz and all these Congress uh, people are mistaken, uh, that, that indeed them taking those undemocratic positions are going to uh, to backfire. But they seem to believe that that's something that voters actually want, which would suggest that voters actually, you know, perceive those actions to be to be fine, to be perhaps non-undemocratic. Yeah, so this is something that you know, Melinda doesn't offer an account of this in in the paper, which is that to the extent that their effects are negative in the paper, and so why would anybody then behave anti-democratically? Right? Why would you do this if it could? on average, only have the effect of decreasing people's willingness to support you, and particularly among marginal voters, particularly among centrists. Like, what are you doing? And especially, why would you, why would you take those positions when you know that they're not going to be to change any outcomes. So, so this is a, a very good example of what's happening right now in Congress. They, they all know that uh, Biden will be the elected president come January 20th. And they still say, I'm going to take this in a democratic position. So, so Yes, that's even more puzzling in light of the results. So, I, I mean, I have three explanations in mind. I mean, this, this parallels the debate we have sometimes about why elected officials are so extreme, even though all the evidence suggests that they would be electorally better off if they could moderate their position. So one potential explanation is they just can't help themselves. They, they really are extremists who don't care about democratic principles. They just can't help it. Um, this is their true position, and it's going to come out one way or another over the course of a campaign. Another possibility is they have the wrong perception about the electoral returns to these behaviors. Maybe all of the people they talk to are their own staffers who are extremists and the people that come to their rallies who are extremists and they tune into cable news and so on. And they think that there are lots of people who are going to reward them for this when in fact there aren't. And then maybe a third possibility that also is somewhat consistent with the data is that this is kind of a thing you do when you're behind. You throw a Hail Mary, you gamble for resurrection. You don't do this normally when you're ahead, but when you're Donald Trump and you see that you're about to lose the election, that's when you start to, um, you know, to try to undermine the, the health of, of our elections. You don't do that when you expect to win. Can I offer a fourth, which is a slight variant on that third one, which is that there are rewards to be had from behaving anti-democratically both in terms of you and members of your party maintaining power going forward, and you and your members of your party's ability to advance an agenda, for which there are decided electoral rewards to be had. So look, if, if again, what I do is you know, wrap myself in constitutional niceties and say, yes, I would like to advance this policy, but I can't because the courts have said I, I can't. There are going to be a set of people in the electorate who are going to say, what are you doing? Whereas if I overcome those obstacles and actually deliver for them. I actually pass the tax cut. There are electoral rewards to be had there. In that sense, there's a political rationale for behaving anti-democratically. 
It's about your ability to deliver for your base and, and secure the rewards associated with doing so and shifting the terms of subsequent political contests to your advantage, which also is beneficial. Yes, but still we see those undemocratic statements and movements, even accompanied by a statement, I know this is not going to have any effect. So what you're talking about, what both of you are talking about, is a situation in which, you know, I, I have a chance to actually, yes, do something anti-democratic, but this is actually going to lead to my policy position being implemented. But here people, the very people who engage in those anti-democratic positions, uh, they, they acknowledge, like, there's nothing we can do. It's, it's all going to end up the same. Biden is going to be the president, and we're going to have all these liberal policies implemented. But I still am going to, to, to do those things that can damage our image abroad, that can damage our you know, ability to impose democracies on other countries and talk about imposing democracies on other countries. So again, I think, I think, I hope Anthony might be right that they just are wrong, that these positions are popular, but they seem to behave as if they believe that these anti-democratic positions were popular with certain constituency. Yeah, and it could be that there's all kinds of internal party politics that explains this kind of stuff as well, that they're they're not trying to please the voters, they're trying to please Donald Trump, and they're trying to please their state, you know, party captains and so on, who, who might, who might be, you know, 100% on board with these positions. But I think, I don't think we have any compelling evidence that this is actually what the voters want. And I think this paper is showing, you know, showing at least, you know, somewhat compelling evidence that they don't. And that's, I take, I take that as reassuring for, for the future of our democracy. So should we talk briefly about Montana? So the last little analysis in this paper focuses on this case, a 2017 special election in, in Montana's U.S. House seat. Greg Gianforte is a Republican. The, the day before the election or very, very near, right before the election. The day before. He, he body slams, he assaults, physically assaults a journalist who, by all accounts, is just trying to ask him some questions about his positions on health care. And what yeah, you we'll talk it. to you about that later. Yeah, but there's not going to be time. I'm just curious if you okay, have to speak right with now. Shane, please. But you don't... You guys, the last Jesus guy that came here, you did the same thing. Get the hell out of here. Jesus. You just body slammed me and broke my glasses. Get the hell out of here. And they've got a, you know, they've got a clever idea where they're going to compare his support in the early votes where those people didn't know about the body slam to the people who voted in person, you know, on, on the election day. And then they're going to do a difference in differences where they essentially compare early to in-person votes in previous elections to try to account for the possibility that the early voters are just different. So it's not, you know, we could, we could probably, you know, we could probably critique the design a little bit if we wanted to, but, but it's an interesting idea. And they find that indeed, if, if you didn't know this already, physically assaulting a reporter <laughs> right before the election is bad for your electoral chances. So that's good. Again, it goes in the, it goes again, except among the it most goes extreme in the expected direction. Right? That's good. Yes. <laughs> what do we make of this? I mean, what, what do we make of this result? Other fact that, you know, I mean, just doing crazy things is bad for you electorally. The authors want to say this is yet another example of, you know, this is an anti-democratic thing because he's assaulting a journalist for doing, doing, doing his job. Now the governor of Montana. He's still got so this, this, yes. this seemed to propel him to of the upper echelons of, uh, <laughs> of politics in the state. Yeah, I mean, it does two things for them. One is it underscores their basic theme that the public can't be counted on to rise up en masse uh, and vote you know, people who assume anti-democratic positions out of office. It, it, it does that. And the other thing that it does is to say, look, the survey experiment is interesting and clever, but it's still a survey experiment. And they want to look at actual behavior, actual votes cast out in the real world. And there aren't very many instances where you have 
something that might be construed as a violation of democratic norms uh, occurring randomly that would allow us to back out the, its effect on votes that are ultimately cast. Now, we could not just quibble, but raise real concerns about the extent to which this difference in difference design works, right? That the, 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 the difference that we observe in a, in a presidential election between early voters versus same-day voters need to be the same as the kinds of differences we observe on off-year elections. But then there is this larger issue about the extent to which we want to say, is, you know, is the learning having to do with a violation of democratic norms? Or is the learning, my God, this guy's crazy, right? Like he's unhinged or, wow, he's a, you know, he's a tough dude. And I really like that. Um, does it have anything to do with the broad themes of the paper? And that's, you know, there we can, people can come to their own views. In light of recent events, in light of this insurrection in Washington and the and the new Georgia Senate re- results coming in, um, we got together again to just talk talk briefly about the same topics and and think about the extent to which we might have changed any of our views in light of in light of this new information. I think the question still remains: to what extent the mob was representative of a broader audience? Is this just a small fraction of most? extreme and vocal uh, Trump supporters, or, or is it is it actually an opinion of an average Republican voter? And, uh, you know, during our podcast, uh, we were talking about what's actually true, and it's worth to remember that those events uh, that happened in, uh, in D.C. Uh, last week came just right after two Democrats won seats in the Senate, two, two Democrats from Georgia won seats in the Senate, despite the fact that pro-Trump candidates were running on the other side, and they were aligning themselves very explicitly with anti-democratic actions. I think if we've learned something from Georgia is that uh, that people are actually uh, attaching quite a bit of weight to anti-democratic actions, and they are willing to switch their votes and vote for a less favorite candidate otherwise, policy-wise, just to express their disappointment with anti-democratic actions. And I think uh, that explains also why a lot of Republicans decided to abandon Trump just right after the riots in D.C., because they realized that, that there is a lot of opposition among voters uh, against those anti-democratic uh, attempts. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that's been said. Obviously, the events the events this past week are extremely upsetting. Yet, I, I come away thinking, you know, one, I don't think, you know, this mob speaks for a large group of Americans. I think there, there probably have always been crazy people who would be happy to march on Washington and try to storm the Capitol if given the opportunity. And maybe, you know, Donald Trump was kind of the coordinating device for them. Like the president told us to do it. Okay, great. Now we can, now we can, now we can really fulfill our dreams. And that was that's obviously you know obviously disappointing and frustrating that that's the case. Um, we unfortunately learned about the perhaps incompetence of our security and our Capitol police and our organization in order to prevent something like that from happening. So that was very troubling. But on the other hand, I think we learned something about the resilience of our democratic institutions. Even Mike Pence and even Mitch McConnell, who would probably love to overturn the results of the 2020 election result, they didn't. And they weren't willing to do that. And they they very strongly renounced the protesters, as they should have. But it, it wasn't, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't obvious to all of us that they would, and they did. You know, the vast majority of, of the American public seems to seems to realize that this was a terrible thing that happened and and they've reaffirmed their um, support for our democratic institutions. So so in some sense, I think, you know, even in this perfect storm of, you know, of things going as badly as they could for the health of democracy, we still weathered that storm well. That that makes me that makes that gives me some 
confidence in the health of our democracy going forward. Yeah, can't we at once be reassured and shaken? I think this is one of those cases where it is true. They Both chambers went back into session in the immediate aftermath and completed their work and thereby sent a powerful signal about the willingness and the capacity of the first branch of government to carry forward and, in fact, certify Biden, the Biden-Harris ticket going to you know take over the second branch of government come January 20th. That's a very big deal. It also is unnerving, I mean, to say the least, that this band was able to take over Congress. And they came within a hair's breadth of actually entering the Senate chambers when the senators were actually in there. And they had, some of them had zip ties, and, which suggested that they, you know, had plans to do more than just, you know, smash windows. When we think about the preparations for this attack and the president's involvement in it uh, and uh, the different responses of at least some Republicans who saw perfectly fit to carry forward and reaffirm the lies that the, the election was somehow rigged or stolen, even in the aftermath of this insurrection. I mean, that's, my God, right? You think, where are we? And yet we were able to withstand that, which is why I say, I think I can't help but feel that once shaken and reassured all at once. Yeah, I think if I think about uh, about what happened, is I'm I'm much more pessimistic and much more disappointed with the behavior of the political class than with uh, the American voter. Like I think the political class thought, inferred from the election of Donald Trump, that that most of the Americans are willing to compromise the democracy, and they just uh, they they didn't think twice and they went along with that. They themselves are willing to compromise democracy just to be reelected, just to be in power. But I think the lesson that hopefully they have learned from the Georgia election is that, that you know, they were wrong about the American voter, that at least the pivotal voter is, is the one who cares about democracy to, to, to you know, quite an important extent. So, so I'm more hopeful about the American public, but extremely disappointed American politicians. And that definitely raises a question, you know, moving forward, uh, if we get another demagogue elected, will they again assume that voters just like demagogues and they don't care about democracy and will they play along? And, you know, this time we were saved, but next time we might not be saved. They might push us too, too hard before we have the next election where the voter can express their opinion. And to be clear, in Georgia, it wasn't a wholesale repudiation of the Republican candidates that we saw there. They, in the general election, barely won, but they didn't get the majorities needed in order to avoid a runoff, but they barely won about against both their candidates. And then, you know, there's a swing of, of I mean, we could count it in the tens of thousands, slightly more than 100,000 votes when out of, you know, over 5,000, 5 million votes cast in the Democrats' favor. So it isn't that Republicans all packed up their bags and said, we won't, you know, withstand, we won't put up with these, these lies um, en masse. It's that there were but there were enough, given just how close the election was, to make a difference there. Yeah, there were enough, and as we talked uh, about in the in the podcast, uh, you know, this was just an election of two senators, and as a voter, you you might not like their anti-democratic attitude, but you might say, well, they are not going to actually be pivotal in uh, dismantling democracy, so you might be willing to 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 uh, to you know play along with that. And the voters, at least on the margin, they weren't. So, you know, but but. Having said that, again, next time it might be that this marginal voter won't be even able to express her opinion because by the time the election should roll around, politicians might be already 
you know, might have already changed the rules to the point uh, at which we can't express our votes uh, properly. I mean, it, it is remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable that, that both Senate seats from Georgia are going to be blue. We were talking about a very solidly red state that is historically, in recent history, not even been competitive, not even been the kind of state we talk about politically. You know, we're also talking about a special election where typically uh, turnout is low in special elections and especially, you know, young turnout, minority turnout is low in special elections. So, you know, the runoff election, right, it's, 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 it's especially shocking that in a solidly red state, in a special runoff election, you'd still get a blue candidate emerging as, the, as, as, as victorious. And we've also talked about the fact that voters typically prefer divided government, or at least a lot of voters do. And so you, if anything, you might have thought, now that we know that Biden is going to be the president, maybe that frees up a lot of conservative leaning, you know, or moderate voters in, in, in Georgia to more confidently vote for Republican for Senate. All of those things are kind of pushing against this result. And nevertheless, um, you get two Democrats elected, albeit in very close elections. So that suggests that there's something else going on that the voters are upset about. It's not that Georgia all of a sudden became hyper-progressive in terms of their preferences on taxes or immigration or something like that. They probably are, are genuinely upset about some of these behaviors of, of the Republican Party and these Republican candidates. Yes, those who, who would and will criticize the president for many things will, uh, on the right, point to his losing the Senate by virtue of you know these lies that he was trafficking in in the aftermath of the election as being really counterproductive towards you know, the Republicans' ability to hold on to, the, on to the Senate. And, you know, we talked, when we were discussing the paper, we talked at some length about, you know, whether or not these effects are big or small. This is a case where the effect on the Georgia electorate was small. The, I mean, in the sense that the number of people who switched votes was a small number of people. We, we don't really know. We don't know. I mean, in the, in the runoff as the effect of this anti-democratic stuff. No, I don't, I don't want to suggest that. But I, it, it, it surely is the case that those who voted in the vast, vast majority of people who voted in both the general and in the runoff voted consistently Democratic or consistently Republican, right? To the extent that there are differences, some people who voted R, who changed their mind and then voted D, it's a, it's a reasonably small number, but that that reason, to the extent that we want to attribute that in turn to Trump and his anti-democratic, small-D democratic entreaties, um, that, that, that small, the small number of shifts induced a massive political shift, right? It led to both races switching and the Democrats getting control of the Senate. And so little effects can have huge political repercussions. Thanks for listening to Not Another Politics Podcast. Our show is a podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy and is produced by Matt Hodap. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.